Master Bowman podcast. If you're obsessed with the strategies, gear, and stories that will make you a better backcountry bow hunter, you're in the right place. We're independent, unsponsored, and unbiased, so we can cut the fluff and give you detailed advice on what really works and what doesn't. In this episode, we interview Wayne Pearsall, who I know as the owner of Archery Only, the pro shop here in the Bay Area, but come to find out he's truly an OG and legend in the sport. With over 45 years of archery-related experience, he's won all kinds of awards that I didn't even know existed, but we go into all kinds of stories and tips for new hunters. So without further ado, we bring you Wayne Pearsall. Hey, Josh. Hey. How you doing, Josh? Doing well. Um, for the listeners, uh, this is Wayne. Welcome to the podcast. We've got a lot to talk about. Um, maybe I'll share, Wayne, how I first met you and then and then <laughs> I bugged you until you came, wanted to come on the podcast. But uh, sure. I actually first met you on November 16th. Uh, no, wait. Yeah, yeah. I think November 16th last year because I came in the shop and I bought a bow that day. And you were super helpful. You gave me a lot of great advice. It was like no pressure at all. You just taught me like so many things about it to consider and had me shoot it. And I freaking love that bow and been shooting it ever since. Um, and then, yeah, it's just been really great coming to the shop. I, I shoot a lot there, obviously. And now we're shooting league. But um, yeah, it's a lot to talk about today. So thank you for coming on the show. Oh, no, my pleasure. I appreciate it. Um, first thing I want to start off with here, Wayne, is like your your background as a kid getting into archery and hunting, and there's a lot to touch on. But one thing that I think is really interesting is when you were 15 years old, you were the California Junior Olympic champion uh, in archery, I believe. And could you give us a little background on like how you got into archery and then how you ended up at 15 year old? Uh, sure. With, yeah, doing that well. And and uh, I basically started shooting uh, in an archery store with a little bit of direction and some coaching when I was about probably about 14 or 15 is when I started. And we actually went to an archery shop with the church group I was in and our instructor took us there for, uh, just an outing to do one afternoon. And we went and had all these bows in there and all this. And, and I'd shot a little bit in my backyard, but I had no idea what I was doing. I went in there and I'm like, wow, this is cool. This is something I identify with. It was something I wanted to try to learn. And I started shooting in a junior Olympic uh, group in that archery shop. And I, I did that from the time I was probably 14 to the time I was probably 19 or 20, probably. And uh, went all the way through the junior Olympic uh, program. And back then when I was shooting a lot of tournaments, they have uh, a bunch of different classifications. So there was uh, youth. And then, and then when you're 18, then you turn into a young adult. And then from 18, I think, to 20 or 18 to 21, then, then you go into the adult category. So I was when I was shooting competitively, I was shooting in the young adult category. Uh, category. Uh, Olympic archery, which is a recurve bow and a sight. And back then you had to shoot 90 meters. So I think the wow. conversion into yards is like 97 yards or something. So wow. you are shooting literally the length of a football field with a recurve bow. Uh, uh, no easy task, even uh, with today's super cool equipment. Uh, when you're shooting arrows that far, it's uh, it's not not a natural thing to do for sure. And, uh, and what I won is I won the Pacific Coast Championships, and I won it a couple years in a row as a young adult. And so that's basically California, Oregon, Washington, uh, Arizona. So it's, it's kind of a West Coast uh, uh, tournament that they do every year. And I was fortunate enough to wow. age is... group to win it a couple years in a row. I think one year I won it by, by one point. <laughs> so <laughs> that must have been but uh, one point's all you need, I guess. <laughs> so yeah. it sounds like you picked up a bow and you were instantly really, really good at it. And like, like within a year, you were winning all these championships. Like what, what was that? Well, journey? it's, you, you, you have two things. And one is, is definitely a reality check. I'm not, I am not the one that's going to brag on myself at all. And and so back then when you have all these different divisions, you know, you could shoot in some of these tournaments and, and you could go to some of these tournaments when you're 15 and 16 years old and there'd be five kids in the tournament, you know, and then if you're a young adult, there could be 15 or 20 kids in the tournament. So back then Olympic archery was a really small group of archers and everyone knew each other. You knew who your competition was almost on a first name basis. When you went to the tournament, 
you knew that there were only, you know, let's say two guys there that you really had to worry about if you were shooting well. And, and so it wasn't like there's five, 600 kids, you know, in these tournaments in this day and age, there's a lot more kids and it is, and is competitive, but, uh, I, I did, I did well for my age group, uh, you know, and, and it was something I, and I shot that way for quite a while and I finally stopped. I mean, everyone has aspirations of going to the Olympics, but I finally stopped just in lieu of the fact that, that it was work. It turned into total work. I wasn't enjoying it. I was always worried about, you know, winning the next tournament and working really hard and doing this and doing that. And, and I finally kind of came to the realization that, that it, it, it literally sucked the life out of, out of the joy of what I was doing. And so when I was probably 18 or so, I started backing off my Olympic aspirations. And, and I got a chance to shoot with, with Daryl Pace, who won the 76 Olympics. I shot in tournaments with him. Uh, Luann Ryan, that was a silver medalist in the Olympics, I shot with her. So I shot in some tournaments where I was shooting against some of the best people in the United States, which was you know, quite an honor even to be able to do that. And uh, generally they beat me pretty soundly, you know, but, but I really enjoyed just the idea that, oh yeah, I'm standing next to a, a gold medal winner and we're, we're shooting and, and I'm in the hunt, you know what I mean? So, so for me, that was, that was great, but I also figured out when I wasn't enjoying it anymore, I, I had to, I had to change tactics. You know what I mean? I had to reevaluate what I was doing and why I was doing it. Yeah. And I don't a- always, Yeah. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, to to not only have that experience, but then to be able to say, "Hey, this is something I love. I don't want to turn it into a into a job." What's uh, I mean, Josh has told me a lot about your background on with bow hunting, you know, internationally. How did you how did you transition from that to becoming a bow hunter, or did you kind of do them at the same time? Uh, I was backing off one, and, and I'd always been a hunter. Um, my dad's from the Midwest, and I started you know hunting with him when I was nine years old, and. You know, we would shoot small game pheasants and ducks and squirrels and rabbits and all that, all that fun stuff when you're a kid. And so I always was a hunter and then hanging around the archery shop, you always bumped into guys that were hunting deer and pigs. And uh, back in the day, guys would go to Santa Cruz and Catalina Island, which is in uh, Northern California down there, right off the coast of LA. And they'd do wild pig hunts and wild goat hunts and, and merino sheep hunts and stuff uh, on those islands. And uh, I just started practicing with a compound bow uh, and back then we shot with our fingers no sights no nothing that was a it was a compound bow with with no accoutrements you, you just shot it like a recurve and uh, that's basically how we started and started shooting small game squirrels and rabbits and stuff like most people do and and then started graduating up and, and doing some deer hunting and wild pig hunting and, and stuff like that uh, so that's kind of how I got started because I was in that shop environment around all these other bow hunters that had some experience and my dad had zero archery experience. It's something he never picked up. And so I, I needed uh, needed mentors of my own, just like, you know, you guys are doing. And that's kind of how I got started. Got it. And so it sounds like you hunted a lot, you know, in California originally. Um, I saw in your bio that you were the fourth person to do the California Grand Slam. Can you explain uh, what the California Grand Slam is and... Yeah, how did you how did you end up doing that? Uh, basically, the the California uh, uh, Bowmen's Association or California Art State Archery uh, Organization has a group called the California Bowhunters Association. It's a kind of a subgroup within the state organization that's ba- mainly just bowhunters, and they set up they have their own record book and they set up criteria for different awards and, and stuff like that. And they have what's called a Whitney Hill Award, and that's kind of like that the highest honor you can get as a bow hunter in the state of California. They do, they do uh, a bow hunter of the year, which is a pretty big deal. And then they do this Whitney Hill award. And there's like eight or nine different ways you can get a Whitney Hill award. And that's something I always wanted to do. Cause I was always supported uh, CBH ever since I was like 17, 18 years old. And I was been in the organization for years, but getting a Whitney Hill award is almost impossible. Uh, you either have to shoot a, you know, uh, an animal that is ridiculously big. You'd have to shoot like a 22 inch black bear to, to get a Whitney Hill award for a black bear. You'd have to shoot, you know, 175 inch mule deer in California t- to get a Whitney Hill award for it. And yeah, it's, it's, it's ridiculously high, but they had a, an entry called a, a, a grand slam award. And it was basically taking, I think 11, different animals, big game animals in California with a bow, and they all needed to make the record book. 
And I kind of figured, well, I'm probably never going to bump into 175 inch mule deer in California, but if I'm methodical and pick my battles, I can knock off most of the species in the state if I dedicate myself. And if I'm not foolish enough to set a timeline, like, oh, I'm going to do it in two years, or I'm going to do it in three years. So I didn't have a timeline, but I wanted to, and I got very methodical about, okay, I need to kill a mule deer now, or I need to shoot a, a Pacific hybrid deer in California or a mainland boar. And so that's what I started doing. And I really started doing that when I was like 19 years old. And uh, I think it took me 20 years, you know, so it's, it's, it's just one of those things. And the, the, the species in that are a little strange because in California you have black tailed deer, mule deer, Pacific hybrid deer, which is like, um, it's kind of down at a, at a King city on the coast. So, uh, there's a little bit more mule deer in those black tails. And so that's considered Pacific hybrid deer. And then there's black bear antelope. Uh, they added coyote in there. Uh, let me think they added, uh, wild hogs are in that category. Turkeys are in that category. And then back then we were hunting Santa Cruz and Catalina Island, which are non-high fence hunts. And those animals have been there for years. So there was island pigs that, that are in there. And then also uh, Catalina Island Spanish goat and Santa Cruz Island uh, merino sheep. So I think that's 11 or 12. And I think wow. I completed that slam in two, 2003. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so it's not like I was quick about it or anything, but I, I definitely... <laughs> actually set goals and actually followed through so wow that's fascinating so the california grand slam not only do you have to take one animal from each of those species but they all have to qualify to be in the book the record book. yeah yeah wow. the, 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 and the, and their their scoring is like pope and young but the minimums are set lower than pope and young so gotcha. It's, it's, you know, they don't, don't expect you to kill, you know, all grand days, but they have to be good, respectable species. Uh, you know, they want you to take good, good, mature animals in, in all those different categories. And, uh, and like I say, yeah, I was the fourth person to ever do that. And actually at this point in my life, I've actually done it twice. So wow. I've, I actually <laughs> I killed two of everything. Now I kind of thought I'll be the first guy that I won't, wasn't the first guy to do it, but I'll be the first guy to do it twice. And so I, I, <laughs> basically did that a year and a half ago, two years ago. So wow, that's incredible. You'd, uh, yeah. You said something fascinating before we started too about, um, about repetition that really drives it home. But what, uh, I mean, that's a long time to keep a goal alive and to do something. What, you know, what kind of motivated you over time to, to keep at it or to, to kind of achieve that? Uh, some of the, some of my heroes, some of the guys in California that I knew, when I was 15 and 16, uh, had done it, you know what I mean? And they were like my, they weren't mentors. The, the, the saddest thing I, I can tell you, like when I started when I was 16 and 17 years old and we'd go to Santa Cruz Island or Catalina to hunt, you know, I would be the youngest guy there. I mean, almost every time. And those guys wouldn't share information. They wouldn't help you out. They wouldn't tell you where to go. It was, it was really a free for all. And I think that as a young bow hunter, that, that really kind of hit me in the face mm-hmm. that all these mature bow hunters and guys in their thirties, forties, and fifties, no one wanted to help anyone. It was pretty doggy dog back then, you mm-hmm. know? And, and ever since I was a kid, I thought, you know what? I will never be that way. <laughs> if someone needs a hand or has questions, I'm all about helping you out or if we're hunting somewhere, and if I can help you drag a hog out and help you gut it and clean it, I'm doing it. Uh, cause it hit me pretty hard that, dude, I got to figure this out because they ain't going to help. <laughs> so yeah. it, it was a different time. And, and I, it's, I'm so glad. Complete 180 to where people are helping people. There's podcasts, you guys are out there and stuff because, you know, everyone says information's king. No, good information is king. There's a lot of information out there that's pretty subpar. And it's easy to get to because of the internet, uh, but really good information is, is far and few between, and it really helps people out. Yeah. Um, one quick follow-up question before I, I want to jump into like all the international hunting that you've done, but quick follow-up question. Um, have you always, would you consider yourself a competitive person? Cause it sounds like uh, from a very young age, you competed in the Olympics and then taking 20 years to accomplish a goal that the fourth person to do it has done is, is pretty insane. And then to do it twice. I mean, I'm getting hints that 
a very driven competitive person could only do that but would you call yourself competitive uh, you know what i don't at all <laughs> not even marginally i just i'm not not wired that way i mean i have no aspirations i shoot one or two tournaments a year and i do it just to hang out with with my guys and to have a good time uh, uh you know i don't and for, for me it's just something it keeps me motivated if i have a checklist if i have something to do you know, and, and I'm like, huh, I knocked off all those animals. Finally, I wonder if I can do it again. You know, you have to get drawn for certain animals and, and stuff like that. And, and so it was one of those things I started knocking them off one by one. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to do this again. And, and, and I probably did it again in four years, you know, so wow. you can, you can, when things are rolling, you know, and, and I am one of those guys, I'm my own worst critic and I'm really hard on myself when things don't go my way or I don't perform the way I'm supposed to go. I'm, I'm, I'm my own worst enemy that way. Mm, so maybe you're competitive with yourself in terms of trying to improve and hit goals, less so of like trying to beat other people. Oh yeah. My, my wife continually tells me how she's pretty sure the doctor dropped me on my head because I am never <laughs> satisfied. Never. Oh, I don't care if it's, too. yeah, you know, whether it's, whether it's hunting goals or whether it's business goals or whatever, it's ne- it ain't, it ain't never good enough. You know what I mean? I'm like, I'll do it better. So, yeah. And, and I don't know. And, and I think she's right. I think the doctor did probably drop me when I was in the hospital. <laughs> so uh, let's pivot real quick to um, hunting all over the world. I mean, when people come to visit your shop, archery only here in Newark, California, in the Bay area, I mean, it is such a sight to see, to just look at that wall, just covering different kinds of animals from different parts of the world. Um, it, off the top of the head, off, off the top of your head, if I could put you on the spot, like, could you list off the different countries and places that you've gone outside of the U S? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, again, it's, I, I've been lucky enough to do some traveling, uh, and I look at it as being just scratching the surface, but, uh, we've hunted, uh, you know, Canada, I've hunted Mexico for Kuzvir, uh, I've hunted Australia, which that was just a total crazy adventure and a half. Uh, I've hunted inside the Arctic Circle on both coasts, east and west coasts. Uh, Africa, I've hunted there a couple times. And it's funny because bow hunters get really, uh, you talk to some guys and they're all about elk 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's their mm-hmm. deal. I mean, if they're bow hunting, they're doing it every year and they're doing it for the same species. And they have a passion for that or mule deer, you know. Uh, and so certain guys really get in the groove and they find something they enjoy and they just stick with it. and and I think that's great that, that anything turns your crank and you get a chance to do it every year and you're dedicating, you know, three weeks to a month, every single year, you know, for whatever your passion is. And some people it's black bears and some people it's caribou. And, and for me, uh, I like to mix it up. People say, what's the most favorite thing? I mean, what do you really love to hunt? If you could only hunt one thing. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, mm-hmm. I've hunted a, a lot of different species and I enjoy going to different places and it's all about the adventure with who the, who I'm with, where I'm at, seeing new things, going, going and, 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 you know, dipping into someone else's culture, seeing how they roll there and, and, and going from there. And, and so for me, that's just as important aspect of the hunt as me putting on my camouflage and grabbing my bow and, and trying to make something happen. Uh, so, uh, Africa is, is just a great trip. Uh, you know, tons and tons of wildlife, all sorts of animals that you've only seen in zoos or never seen at all. Uh, Australia was particularly satisfying. We, when we went over there, we were, had a film crew with us and we went, uh, we're working for PSE archery and they had a TV show called today's bow hunter. And so we did 14 days, uh, in Australia doing Buffalo hunting and, uh, hog hunting and just, you know, whatever they had to offer over there. And that was just a crazy adventure all the way from all the wildlife and the crazy snakes and everything that will sting you and bite you and scratch you. And, uh, just being in the bush for 14 days straight, uh, was, was awesome. So, uh, I, I'm not one of those guys, you know, I love hunting deer. I love hunting pigs. I love hunting elk, but I always like the next thing and the new adventure and trying something that I've never tried before really kind of gets me going more so than hunting the same species every single year uh, and just kind of locking into being uh, trying to be the best elk hunter I can be or being the best blacktail hunter I can be, you know? Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. I've, Josh and I have talked a lot of 
been lucky enough to hunt New Zealand and Hawaii, even though I'm a relatively young hunter, five or you know, 10 years total, um, five years bow hunting, like 10 years with, with rifle type stuff. Um, and it's just incredible. I love that. Like you, I think you hit it on the head with the, it's all about the adventure and seeing new places. Um, what do you think, you know, if people come to you and they say, Hey, I, you know, I do the deer, I do the elk, I do the bear thing. What do you think is the most underrated species that, that most people don't talk about or something you think is a good, good adventure for newer hunters that haven't really stepped outside those standards? Uh, well, there's, there, there's two that come off the top of my head that are almost the same species. And I would almost tell a lot of beginners <laughs> to don't go down that road. Cause it's really frustrating. <laughs> uh, I, I think that the, the toughest thing to kill in North America with a bow is a coos deer. <laughs> uh, it's a miniature white tailed deer. They're in, uh, Mexico, Arizona and, uh, uh, New Mexico. And that's, that's it. And they're really small. Everything eats them. It's like a white-tailed deer on crack. They're, they're really hard to get. And there's not a lot of them uh, to begin with. And almost everyone goes to Arizona. That That's everyone's go-to spot to hunt, to hunt them. When I've hunted Arizona, I probably put 60 days, 55 days hunting those little deer in Arizona and never oh. killed one. And wow, then, uh, yeah, you gotta be stupid to do that. I know. So. <laughs> Josh is, Josh has been just frothing at the bit to go who's deer hunting so i'm sure he has a few questions oh yeah it's yeah. it's you know coos deer are coos deer and uh i would tell a guy if you want to hunt them go to arizona if you want to kill one go to mexico mm, interesting um i thought when that you do have one uh, didn't you have one coos deer kill uh, or one year was it in yeah, mexico I, or? I, I, yeah i actually uh one, another one of the things on my hit list is I wanted to shoot a grand slam of deer. So there's five deer species in North America. So there's a, a black-tailed deer, mule deer, white-tailed deer, sick of blacktail, which is in Alaska, and then coos deer. And, uh, and I wanted to do that because I knew I was never going to be in the tax bracket to kill a grand slam of sheep just because the, the, you know, I don't live that large. Okay. So um, me going on and shooting a desert big horn and spending 60 K there is probably not going to happen anytime soon, but I, I am one of those guys. I'm like, you know what? I could shoot a grand slam of deer. And again, that's something me and a, a buddy who's a, a black tail guide started talking about in like 87, 1987, where only one guy had ever done it. I mean, Chuck mm -hmm. Adams was, was the first guy to shoot a grand slam. And so he was, he was the first guy to shoot a slam of deer. And I started telling him, dude, it's affordable. We can do it. And there's only a couple guys that have actually done it. And uh, me not being in a hurry, but being persistent and, and consistent. I think I finished my deer slam, you know, from killing my first black tail when I was like 18 years old to killing a Sitka black tail in Alaska, which would be the fifth animal. I think I shot it three years ago, four years ago. How's that for a timeline when I'm, you know, I'm 59 now. So, so I can get it done. I just don't do it in a hurry guys. <laughs> and Wayne, um, I, I just, I remember you telling me a story at the shop and maybe, maybe you can share with our audience of that. I think it was the coos deer or maybe it was a black tail. Do, do you know which one I'm referring to? It was an, the epic buzzer reader story. Oh yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's funny because I'd hunted coos deer, like I said, probably 50 to 60 days in North America, you know, seen deer made a lot of stocks, made a lot of mistakes. Um, I'm, and it's only a mistake if you keep making it guys, because bow hunting, mm -hmm. you make lots of mistakes and you got to learn from every mistake you make. If you don't make that mistake again, you're, you're golden. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I always look at mistakes as, okay, that's one more thing I ain't doing again. And I cross, cross that one off my list and kind of, kind of move on down, down the road. And, and so for, for those deer, like I said, and then I went to Mexico, to Chihuahua, Mexico with the guys from PSC when we were doing video work for them. And uh, we were going to film a coos deer adventure down there. And we did. And we were supposed to be. And rained on us the entire time. Oh, we were there, sorry, wait, wait, even wait. though they hadn't seen snow in that country for a hundred years. Sorry to cut you off. Uh, it it yep. uh, cut out for a second. Could you start over with uh, Chihuahua? Yeah. So we, uh, the, the first time we hunted out of country for them is we went to Chihuahua, Mexico and I was with a bunch of my guys from PSC. I was on their bow hunting staff uh, for quite a while and their video crew from the outdoor channel was there. And we went down to Chihuahua for seven days to go hunt uh, coos deer. And it was supposed to be a water, you know, typical water hole hunt on blinds. That's really the best way to actually shoot one. 
And we got there and it was pouring rain and it was snowing the entire time we were there. So uh, all the ponds were frozen and we ended up uh, rattling for deer. And actually we probably rattled in and something that I'd never even seen done before. We probably rattled in five or six coos deer in three days. And <laughs> my buddy Scott killed a really nice 10 pointer at about six yards on that hunt. Uh, one, one of the other guys killed a buck. Uh, I didn't get any opportunities. If, if I went to the right side, the deer came in on the left and you know how that goes when you're always in the wrong place. But th that was the first time we went. And then I went five years later, uh, to Sasabe, Mexico, which is right on the other side of the, of the Arizona border. And you are actually looking into California from where we were hunting. And that was, uh, again, supposed to be a waterhole hunt. And again, it was, uh, I remember it being so cold and wintry that they closed down all the schools in Mexico. <laughs> wow. So if I go to Mexico, it ain't going to be hot. I know that for a fact, because <laughs> that's historically the way things roll. But uh, we ended up hunting for seven days. Uh, my buddy, who's a blacktail guide in Northern California, on the third day, killed two coos deer with his bow stalking in 30 minutes. Wow. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. He's got, he's got really mad skills. He's, he is one of the sneakiest rednecks I've ever met. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, I ended up hunting all seven days and they picked me up in the truck on the last evening and they're like, well, you know, we're kind of done. Let's get in the truck. And we started driving down the hill and I had about 30 minutes left. And I said, you know what, let me off at the head of the Canyon where Richard shot those deer. I'm going to go in there and rattle a little bit and walk around until it's dark. I said, I, I can't go back to camp, dude. I'm, I'm, I have too many hours into this. I, you know, I, I really, I'm going to let it get dark on me. That that's how this is going to end. And I ended up dumping into that Canyon and I walked about 200 yards and spotted a, a coos deer doe getting pushed by a buck. And I started kind of watching how he was working and I checked the wind and uh, ran up the Canyon about 150 yards. And I had that doe walk by me at about, 35, 40 yards. And I knew he was going to be kind of hot on our trail. And, and so I figured, okay, this is it, you know, maybe I'll get an opportunity. And, and I could see this buck working through the brush. It's really brushy in Mexico. He was working and working and working and working. And all of a sudden he made a hard left-hand turn and he walked right up to me. And I'm talking about so close. I didn't think I gave him pull my bow back to full draw. I mean, he was right in my face and I'm like, oh my God. And so I had the bow up. And he walked behind a tree that was like four inches in diameter. And as soon as his head started to go behind that, I pulled my bow back and the timing was really nice. And he didn't see a thing and he just kept walking by me. So this buck probably was on a trail that was like seven yards from me. And he's walking by really slowly. And Juan Pablo, the guide wanted to tag along with me, which I wasn't real thrilled about because he's not a real stealthy individual but he was about 30 yards behind me and he was being very quiet and the deer walked right by. And I remember pulling my bow back and kind of the pins dropping into where I wanted to get. And as soon as my whole pin guard was on him, I had the overwhelming urge just to jump on the trigger. And I know that's not going to work. I'm probably going to shoot a foot over that deer because I'm not picking a spot and I'm not picking the right pin. So I remember physically getting off the trigger saying, Hey, moron, aim, aim, 20 yard pin, low in the chest, aim. And I touched it off and hit him and he ran 35 yards, rolled over in a ball. And all that happened probably 25 minutes before it got dark. You know, we had a hard time taking pictures of him because it was getting dark so quick. So that's kind of, I tend to be that guy. So if it's a 10 day hunt, if Wayne kills something, it's pretty much on the 10th day for some reason. It seems like I got to work extra hard, but uh, that was probably one of the most exciting bow hunting moments. Probably one of the smallest animals in the world you're going to shoot but probably one of the most satisfying things you'll, you'll ever get done, you know? Wow. And, and there's such a lesson in there too, of like, you know, you, you decided, you know, I'm not ending this, this hunt this way, you know, got some light left. Is, isn't that how you got your uh, black tail deer this last season? Uh, yeah, this, the, this season, yeah, I shot a black tail buck, uh, just, just a nice, nice meat, meat buck. Uh, I'd been hunting three other deer and I had them on camera and that's what I was looking for. And so I passed up probably six or seven deer during the season. And, you know, last day of season rolled by and all those bucks were, were, it's funny, those three bucks I had targeted, I never saw them the entire season during daylight hours, not even once. Mm -hmm. So some years weather gets you and stuff and it was hot and 
not a lot of weather this year. So the bucks were running at night a lot, but you know, I had a buck, uh, uh, got on a buck like five minutes before it got dark and, uh, uh, had a nice little 20 yard chip shot at him. And I'm thinking, you know what? I didn't, sh- I didn't fill a tag last year cause I was too picky. Maybe I should shoot a deer this year. That would be smart. <laughs> so, uh, he was in the wrong place at the wrong time and, and, uh, finished up, uh, and burned a tag at the last minute. So it's, it's much better to have a, uh, freezer full of venison than it is to be trying to chew on a tag. That's that, that's for sure. So, yeah. Yeah. I want to, uh, transition a little bit into, um, Wayne, the archery shop owner. I mean, you've owned archery only for what? 31 years now, 30, 30, yeah. 89. So that's, I don't know, 31, 30. So I don't know. Yeah. 31 years now. Um, could you tell us, and I know you in 2006, you won retailer of the year. Um, could you tell us more about that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, working in this industry is something I, I was doing when I was 16, 17 years old. Uh, you know, so I, I had a good background in the industry and, uh, I, I went to college for a few years and, uh, was still working at an archery shop part-time while I was going to college, working my way through college and did that and uh then got into fire sciences my father was a firefighter a career firefighter and uh got into fire sciences and stuff and uh got my degree in that and then i ended up being on the list for probably 15 different fire departments in the greater bay area and uh found out that man even though you got your schooling and you've done this and that it's pretty hard to get hired extremely hard to get hired and uh so I started thinking, you know what, I have to, I got to do something here. And I started thinking, you know what, I'm already working in an industry I know quite well. You know, I, I know if I can save enough money to get a place started that, that, uh, that I can keep it going, you know, and uh, uh, that's basically what I did. You know, I started the store in 89, a store was going out of business that was in Newark that had been there for like 10 years. And uh, I went in the last day he was open and I bought his phone number and his phone listing from him, which is you, you can legally do. And uh, so when he went out of business, I opened up three days later and I had his phone number, which was a 10 year uh, existing archery shop number. So everyone that called him that didn't know he was out of business immediately got a hold of the new shop in town. So oh. that, that, that was the best 500 bucks I ever spent. So. <laughs> and so um, I, I was, you know, after coming to the shop and watching, you know, different people, I know like Alexander used to work at the shop and now he, he moved to Boise and watching Daniel, he's like a 16 year old, 17 year old kid come in and start working part-time and shoot and seeing Roger there. I, it made me really think about how the archery shop to me, it feels almost like a combination of a martial arts dojo or like a martial arts studio where you have people come in, they train, they, 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 they trade, you know, technique tips and they practice and they put in a lot of work, but on the other hand, it's almost like a bike shop as well because of the gear that we use is so complex and there's so much to it. So in my mind, the archery shop reminds me of like an art, uh, martial arts studio and a bike shop combined. And so one of the challenges, challenges it seems is like people come to work, you know, the the talent pool to go work at an archery shop is maybe like people who'd work at a restaurant or a retailer, but they need to have the expertise of almost like a bike shop owner. Um, so yeah, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on that? And like, what are some of the challenges that comes with owning an, ar- an archery shop? Yeah, well, it, it's, it's one of those things that, no, I, I, I think you're right. I mean, it's, it's almost like a, a scuba diving store. You know, they, they do lessons, they sell equipment, they take people out on trips, you know, a bicycle store is a great analogy too. Uh, and it is a, everyone kind of says, oh, you know, you, you do, you know, you, you run an archery shop that that's kind of strange. And I go, oh yeah, it's strange. All right. Uh, you know, and, and it's really funny because a lot of people just kind of look at you sideways and they go, oh, yeah, that's not even a real thing. Okay. Funny doing a uh, livelihood that most people have never heard about or seen and, and, and have no reality check on who you are or, or what you do for a living, which I think is, is kind of funny. But, uh, you know, what I do for a living is kind of silly. Uh, there's no doubt about it. But it, it is one of those things that, yeah, it's archery is more technical than ever, you know. Uh, and there's lots of different types of customers that actually come in. Uh, 
the guys we really appreciate are the guys who appreciate us. Uh, they they want a square deal on the equipment and they want someone there to answer their questions and they want someone there to mentor them and they want someone there to, to fix little problems for them. And that's what keeps us alive. That, that's why the, the internet hasn't totally buried the entire archery industry. I mean, it, it's put a big hurt on it, but still the quality stores with good sales staff and, and knowledgeable individuals uh, are still doing okay, which is, which is really good. Uh, but it is one of those things, uh, getting people to work, uh, is always tough because you know hiring people is no big deal. Getting anyone that has a clue is a big deal. So you're a hundred percent there. And I really wish I could, you know, spend a hundred grand on every person that walked in the front door that wanted to work for us. Uh, we could definitely get quality people. Uh, but in our industry too, it's a retail uh, setting. Overhead in California is stupid high per square foot, uh, and so it's really really tough to try to get people that have the skill and the passion that want to be there and grind hard because everyone thinks you don't do anything for a living. You just kind of hang out uh, and that there's a little bit more to it than that. Uh, and, and obviously, you know, uh, being able to get somebody that's going to be more than a two year investment, because if I hire someone for a year and it takes me a year to get them trained and then they move on after a year, I've just spent a bunch of money for nothing. So you're, you're kind of looking for somebody that's passionate and they want to be there because they enjoy the sport and they're passionate about the sport. Uh, they obviously know that, that, uh, that they're not going to probably be working for us for 10 years or anything, but it's a good starting point, especially if guys want to learn how to run a small business or if guys want to learn, uh, a customer service and how to sell equipment and how to take care of customers properly. It's a great stepping stone. One of the guys who worked for me for quite a few years, uh, moved up and started managing shields, which is a huge sporting goods store in Reno, Nevada. I mean, Shields is so big, they make Cabela's look small. I mean, when you walk into a Shields store, it's bigger than a Cabela's store. And the sales staff are all five-star top-end sales guys. They all know if they're in the running shoe department, they're runners and they know the game. If they're in the archery department, they're killing stuff and they understand how to set you up to do the same. If they're in the optics department, they know all about optics. So Shields is a real scary place because not only do they give you great prices, is that their sales staff is on point. They know how to take care of people. And and John, one of my guys that worked for me for probably 10 years, he went up there, started in the archery department, uh, making a bunch of money on commission, uh, was getting free trips to Mexico every year because his sales were through the roof compared to everyone else in the entire store complex. And now he he's probably been with them 10 years now, and he's now head of the rifle department and the optics department. And so he's making a great living and he's just a, a killer individual, loves hunting, loves fishing, loves archery. And he's, and he's, you know, making a really good living there doing, doing what he loves to do. And, uh, I think John worked for us with, from when he was like 13 years old, all the way through college. So he worked for us for a lot of years, but he, he also, uh, you know, I, I talked to him three, four times a month. He's like a second son. He's a really, really great guy and he's really done well for himself. So, you know, finding motivated people that, that want to do something they love to do is, is the hardest part about having some sort of a store like ours. Amazing. Yeah. That's uh, that shields is impressive. I've, I remember when I was doing rifle hunting, they're one of the only people that stocked, you know, Cooper rifles and beautiful handmade rifles and from Montana and just going up there and looking at those. So cool. You know, to see them in person. Um, it, and this is kind of a two-part question for you, Wayne, but for guys that are looking for a shop for the first time or they have a few in their area, you know, part one would be what, what would you say are good ways to, to choose a shop? Like what should they be looking for in that shop? And then you know, part two is once they've done that, like how do they, how do they be a great customer, right? Like what's, what's something that'll help them uh, get the most out of that experience? Uh, I, I think that, uh, the best thing to do is to go to two or three shops, meet, meet, meet the staff, talk to people, uh, see if they pay attention to you when you walk in the front door. I, I can't tell you how many crazy stories I hear, you know, someone walks in our store, we're like, Hey, how are you doing, sir? Nice to see you. We'll be with you in a few minutes. And he goes, Oh, I'm going to be here a while. You at least talk to me. <laughs> what? And he goes, Oh, I was at another store. I walked around for 30 minutes. I told the guy I was interested in buying a bow. And he was playing video games and told me someone wanted to be out in a few minutes to see me. 20 minutes later, I just walked out. And I'm like, oh, 
not good. So I I think it's good for people to, to go to a couple different stores. If you have the alternative, you know, to go to a couple different stores, meet the people and see if you get a, a good feeling from them. I mean, everyone has their own personalities. Everyone rolls a little differently. Uh, you know, and, and you want to go to a store where you feel comfortable and you feel that, that those guys are there to take care of you and, and know what they're talking about, uh, it's, is, is the most important aspect of that. And, uh, and I think that that's what I'd say is just vet the stores, go in there and talk to people. Uh, everyone goes online now and talks too. So pe- people talk about, Oh, go to this store, go to that store and, mm-hmm. and, uh, Yelp, Yelp and all that other fun stuff is, is floating around out there. So you, you can actually do that too. But I'm a guy who's going to walk into a place, uh, whether it's a guitar store or something like that. And I'm going to meet those guys. I'm going to talk to them. I'm going to see if, if, if I'm important to them when I walk in the door, because if I'm not important to them as a customer, that's taking time out of my day to walk into their front door, if they don't acknowledge me and want to talk to me. I'm done. I'm out. I'm going down the road because it's that that's too much effort that I'm taking to drive to a retail location and walk inside to maybe spend a lot of money. Right. So Mm -hmm. uh, for me, I I think that's, that's, you know, super important more than anything else. Uh, You were talking about good customer. What is a good customer? Mm -hmm. Uh, For us, a good customer is somebody that's passionate about their new sport. You know, and, and it's really funny. A lot of guys will come in and ask us a question and they'll want an answer and we'll tell them an answer. And if my answer isn't what they wanted to hear, they'll immediately just shut us down. It's, it's hilarious. You know, some guy will read something on the internet and I might have a different opinion. And some of the guys will just like, well, I think it's this way. I read this and this is what they're saying. I'm like, oh, that, that's your opinion. I mean, I've only done this for 45 years. I, what would I know? I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, I, you know, we, we do this for a living. I mean, I, I don't, uh, I don't sell cars on the side. That's all we do is archery period. Mm-hmm. You know, so it is kind of funny when, when guys come in and when you don't agree with them and we don't ever viciously disagree with anyone, but we will tell you what, what we think and, and, what has worked for us in the past. And it might not be what you hear online and it might not be a piece of equipment that, that you've even heard of, you know, mm-hmm. but it will definitely tell you this is a good piece of equipment and this is why we sell it. And this is why I personally have used it for the last eight or nine years. And, and, you know, whether you want to go a different route, that's cool too. We sell a lot of different equipment. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's funny. I think one of the biggest killers for archery shops in the last couple of years has been uh, a lot of the manufacturers really take care of, of the bow shops. I mean, you have Hoyt and Bowtech and Matthews and stuff, and they're kind of the creme de la creme of bow manufacturers and they're, and they're all dealer only, which means you have to go into a dealer to get the bow. You can't get it online, uh, which is great for us. But what's been happening is that, you know, for years and years, those guys would come in and we'd show them a bunch of bows and they'd try them out and they'd say, great, this is the one I want. And then we'd show them a sight and an arrow rest. And then they'd, we'd put all the stuff on their bow. We'd sell them their accessories and out the door they'd go. And one of the things that, that's been really hard on dealers in the last five years, especially, is that the Internet's a big deal. And now with COVID, no one wants to leave their house. So the Internet's a really big deal because uh, no one wants to leave the house anymore. But what happens is we'll spend two or three hours with a guy and he'll say, great, I'm going to get that Matthews VXR and great. And he says, I'll be back Tuesday to pick it up. And then he comes back Tuesday and he comes in and he brings a big shopping bag with him. And it's a sight and an arrow rest and a quiver and a release, everything he bought on eBay. And he brings it in and it's all brand new stuff. And, you know, he might've saved $5 on this and $8 on this and this and that. And, and then he brings it in and then he, he wants us to install it all for free. Yeah. It's brutal. And I'm, I was like, uh, okay, well that's, you know what, we got to charge you to install all this stuff, dude. I just bought a thousand dollar boat for me. I go, I understand it. And I really appreciate it. But, but, you know, obviously, I mean, you know, we're, we've been here 30 years and we're trying to make a living and, and obviously, you know, we sell all the accessories too, but you have to, you have to think about it. It's kind of like me going, pick it up. I bring in, uh, oversized tires and a bumper and fog lights and a stereo system. And when I'm picking up my new $70,000 truck, I hand him a box of this stuff. And I go, by the way, just install all this stuff while I wait and I'll be in the parking lot. And yeah, you're good with that. Right guys. Well, no, after I spent 70 grand on that, on that truck, the guy's going to pretty much tell you, 
no, we, we'll be more than glad to install it. We have a service center here and, you know, we'll just charge our hourly rate to do it, you know, which just makes sense. But it's mm-hmm. really funny how a lot of the guys think that we're a bad guy if, if we want to charge them 30 bucks to totally build a bow when they've put $700 worth of accessories on it, you know what I mean? That they bought somewhere else. So yeah. it's, it's, it's really hard to keep everyone happy sometimes. And I don't even understand how a customer would do that to a small business, but mm-hmm. it virtually happens every day. Yeah. And it, it's, and it's not a big deal to, to these guys either. And we're a bad guy. If we want to say that we got to charge you a few bucks to install it because it's going to take us, you know, 45 minutes to build your bow and set it up. Yeah, no, it's, I think it's a lot of it is, uh, you, Josh and I were talking this about, uh, public land hunting too, how some of the etiquette can be rough at times. I think it's just a lot of guys that just don't, you know, they're new to this too. And they just don't know. I mean, that's, I think it's cool to talk to an archery owner here and understand the realities of that, that business. But that's, I mean, like you said, that's, that's 45 minutes of your time and you're paying California square footage, right? That's a, that's a lot. That's a big ask. You know, that's a, that's a few, you know, hundred dollars at least out of your pocket. Um, to do that for someone. Um, so it's probably a good thing for guys, guys listening to hear that, uh, you know, I think it's, there's a little bit of, you know, for black, a better term quid pro quo, which is you're, you know, you're, you're giving the advice, you're setting up the stuff, you're helping out. And that's, that's the number one thing we've talked, Josh and I talked about too, when he wanted to get a bow, I was like, you have to go to a bow shop because the, the expertise, you're not buying the bow, you're buying the, the expertise, right? Someone to help you set it up. But I think, a lot of guys just don't realize that that's what you're buying at a bow shop, right? Is you can, well, yes, just, it, yeah. Yeah. You're, you're a hundred percent right. And, and just the idea that you can try out two or three different bows and everything's going to be set up for you. And then everything is going to fit you and you're going to have a really good experience. I mean, believe me, Hoyt and Matthews and Bowtech would love to sell bows online, but they know for a fact that, you know, 80% of those bows are going to get into guys' hands. The drawing could be too long, too short. The bow will be too heavy, too light. The arrows won't be matched. The arrow rest won't be center shot. The peep will be twisting or it'll be too high or too low. Nothing will be set up right. And they're going to have a terrible experience. And they know for a fact what's going to happen is that bow, after the guy shoots it for two or three months, is going to end up online. And they're going to sell it to someone else that has no archery chops. And that guy is going to have a bad experience with that bow. And once those guys get burnt, one of those, once when those guys spend money and shoot for three months and hate it and hit their arm and they're sore and they can't hit anything, most of those guys are gone. They're going to go right back into their rifle stuff or their, or their uh, duck hunting mode or whatever they're comfortable doing that are, that are having a good time with. So, that, you know, Matthews and, 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 uh, Hoyt and these guys are really smart because they're dealer only. They want to make sure that every person that grabs a white bow, when they try a white bow, it's fitted to them and it's comfortable and they have a good experience. Matthews is, is the same way. And, and for guys that understand that, you know, there's a right way to do this. And, and if you really want to turn this into a hobby, you're going to be passionate about, you know, having someone walk you through it, especially as a beginner is really important, you know, and it's, and it's sad because when I started, there were 10 archery shops in the greater Bay area. When I started in 89, Wow. there's, there's three, maybe four. And we're from top to bottom. We're an hour and a half from each other. So we're, you know, where you could drive 20 minutes and go to a different store and drive 20 minutes and go to another store and kind of shop around and look around, but they're all gone, you know, because it's, it's, it is a viciously hard way to, to make a living, you know? Yeah, especially with Amazon.com nowadays. Um, Wayne, I was hoping when Baxter said, um, like, what is an ideal like customer? What's a good customer? I, I was hoping you were going to say Josh. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's, it's Baxter and I Josh, talked about this. You're, you're right up there, buddy. You're right up there. <laughs> and, and, and actually, you, you are very easygoing, and, and that's that's super important. And I, I mean, to me, the, the, the best thing about a customer is somebody that's that's hungry and fired up and and they want to get after it you know what i mean and 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 like you josh when you come in you're a you're a sponge oh, okay yeah. i mean Curious, you, you're, you're listening to everything and and you're smart because you understand that that you know listening pays way more dividends than talking you know what i mean it's mm. it's you're going to hear stuff you agree with you're going to hear stuff that you think is silly but you can you can weed through it and see what works for you and that's that's a huge deal 
Thanks. Yeah. And I, I made it a point too. And, and Baxter and I talked about this of like little things that I need to buy. I just always buy it from the shop because um, yeah, we're not buying products. I mean, you're kind of like investing in a relationship is the way I see it with your local shop, the local guys there. I made so many friends at that archery range. I mean, when you're getting into a new sport, it's hard to meet people who are into it. If you go to the range there and shoot off and you'll start side conversations, you'll, you'll hear them bring something up. And then every little thing I always just buy at the shop just to continue to support our local archery shop. I mean, it, the, the amount of things I've learned from you, Wayne, and from Roger and from other employees there, it's, it's priceless. You know, even if you're going to pay a few bucks extra for, for something uh, that you can find instead of buying it, like used on eBay or something like that, it's totally, totally worth it. Um, and I think it goes without saying, but just wanted to point that out for people. Like it's, it's important, I think, to, to support your local shop. Out of doubt. No, and we really, really appreciate it. And it, and and all, like I said, having it's it's scary now because I've been in business so stinking long that I'm selling equipment to third generations right now. I'm setting up kids that are seven and eight, nine years old that are my original customers' kids. So it's their grandkids we're, we're setting up right now. So wow. it, you know, when when I look at that and see these kids that I'm setting up and laughing, they're going on their first hunting trip because they're ten years old or twelve years old or whatever, and they're getting their stuff and they're hanging out with dad or whatever. It's, it's, it's a little scary, but it's really, really cool to see how they're still passionate about what they're doing after all these years. And that it's something that, that they're actually handing down from one generation to another. It's, it's, it's something they do, right. It, it's, it's part of what their family does. Mm-hmm. And maybe one more, you know, off the yeah. cuff question here for you, uh, Wayne, what do you think is the one thing that people, Bows are not cheap, right? You come in, you spend a lot of money on the bow. You spend a lot of money on the accessories. You know, it hurts, especially for guys that are new. Um, but what do you think is the thing people should spend more money on that they don't? Like, what do you think is the least appreciated equipment you sell? Or uh, thing? Good, good. I think the two things that, that, that pay really good dividends are to get a guy into a good release, something maybe with a fixed sear and something where there's no trigger travel. Because uh, having a really, really inexpensive trigger uh, tends to lead to target panic and some bad habits pretty quickly. Hmm. Uh, so I, I think getting into a good trigger uh, actually is something that that you can actually see the difference in, in how you're shooting pretty quickly. Uh, a lot of guys talk about arrow rests and uh, you know how how you, you need to have a drop away arrow rest and and this and that, or you have to, you have to have arrows that are you know. Uh, 0.001 and all this stuff and it's good to have good equipment but the reality is is that i set up a lot of guys with a 59 dollars whisker biscuit and they shoot two inch groups all the time at 20 yards all day long and uh, you know i have guys who who go desert bighorn sheep hunting in mexico and are spending 50 to 60k to do so and they're shooting a 60 dollars whisker biscuit and they're shooting it because it's a simple piece of equipment there's no moving parts and they can shoot five inch groups at 60 yards with it. And on a really windy day, when you're hunting sheep up at elevation, it gets really windy and nasty. Sometimes the arrow stays on the arrow rest. There's no way it's coming off. It's a full capture system. And they like the idea. It's simple and there's no moving parts and nothing to break. So, so a lot of guys would say, no, the arrow rest is the single most important thing, but I, I would have to disagree. I think a whisker biscuit for, for guys with, with, uh, even good archery chops, I think it's going to shoot pretty darn good. Uh, I think having a, a, a good trigger would really, really help. And I think having a, a site where the pins are really, really bright, really, really visible, you know, having something that's got eight or nine inches of, of fiber optic material in it. Uh, when you're hunting low light uh, conditions or you're hunting elk and you're in a bunch of trees and blow down and, 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 and you don't have a, a lot of light uh, early morning and late in the evening, Having a really bright pin is huge because if you can't see your pins, especially if you're hunting, mm-hmm. you're done. So I, I think those two things, after they've bought a bow, I think are going to be two items that, that continually produce good dividends in hunting situations. Uh, personally, I think arrows mm-hmm. are farther down the line. And I even think your arrow rest is just a matter of getting something comfortable with and, and kind of going from there. So that, that, that would be my, my hit list, whether that's right or wrong. I know there'd be a ton of guys that totally disagree with me, mm-hmm. but, uh, Always, right. those would be the two on my hit list. 
religion and hobbies, you're always going to get some pretty strong opinions. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Well, if, 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 if you want to hear arguing and yelling, just start talking about broadheads. I don't, and that, that always ends up in a bloodbath because guys will go to the guys will say, Oh, you shoot a Matthews and shake their head and laugh at you. Uh, but when you tell them that you shoot, you know, this broadhead and the other guy shoots a different broadhead, they'll go to blows over it. It's hilarious too. Cause if there's something that should not be argued about, it's a, it's the pointy thing at the end of a, at the end of a, of an arrow. I'm sorry. It's yeah. a real basic piece of equipment. Okay. There's not a lot to argue there, kids. Uh, Wayne, I want to be respectful of your time here. Uh, I had a couple questions to wrap up, but uh, one would be, you know, you spent so decades and decades, both doing archery and also hunting in both categories. What do you think are some of the biggest mistakes that early archers make and early hunters, bow hunters make? I, I, I think the, the biggest mistake that everyone makes, including me is how can I put this? Uh, for me, it's one of those things when I miss shots on animals, it's because I'm rushing myself and, and I need to shoot on the animal's time, not on my time. Uh, mm-hmm. and so for me, it's one of those things. If I'm pushing my shot routine, if I'm trying to trying to shoot quicker than I'm comfortable doing, it's always a catastrophe. So when I'm pulling up on a buck and, 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 and my timing's off and I'm trying to rush through the whole sequence because I think the animal's, you know, walking away or is at a bad angle or is going to be at a bad angle and I got to get the shot off now, I'm going to screw that up 99% of the time. So for me, biding your time, being really patient when you're on the trigger, being really patient right before you draw your bow and you need to shoot the arrow in your time, you know? And, and, and if the animal's there, he's there. If he turns around and walks away or steps behind a tree and you don't get the shot, you're not going to get the shot. Rushing the shot is only going to do two things. You're going to miss, which is the best case scenario, or you're going to hit the animal poorly, which is worst case scenario. Uh, so, so for me, uh, it's all about being patient. Uh, the, the last couple of years I've been taking my, my wife bow hunting and stuff. And, uh, she's been doing really good. She, she killed a really nice Pope and young black tailed deer. She killed a hog. She killed a javelina in the last two years. And the one thing she does, because half the time I'm, I'm in a blind with her, she takes so much time. I get nauseous. I'm like, Oh my, is, is this woman ever going to shoot? What is going on? Is she asleep? She's asleep. Right. And, and she is so patient. She waits for just the right moment. And if it doesn't happen, if, if the deer walks away, she's like, Oh, I didn't get him. Who cares? No big deal. What's for breakfast? Let's go get breakfast. Okay, cool. And so she's, she's really has her mindset properly. And then when she shoots, she's relaxed, she's calm. She takes her sweet time and then some, but when she's shooting, she's, she's, she's a hundred percent on animals, three shots, three, one arrow kills done. No mistakes, no messing around because she's doing it on her time. And if the animal allows her the time, she's successful. If the animal doesn't, the animal lives to fight another day and she's going to come back and, and try it again. So I actually learned quite a bit from mentoring her and helping her out that, man, I need to slow down a little bit, you know? Wow. That is a great, great piece of wisdom and great piece of advice to end on. Uh, is there anything actually um, that we missed that you'd like to touch on or anything we didn't get to cover? Uh, no, I, I think you guys, you know, c- covered mo- most, most everything. Like I said, it was a, a real good smattering of kind of who we are and what we do and, and stuff. And, and like I said, if you guys ever want to get specific on anything, whether it's different species or bow setups or arrow, uh, how much arrow weight you're shooting these days and all this other stuff. I mean, we can always talk and go into specifics about any singular aspect of what, of what, uh, your guys that are watching your podcast think is important or might, might be interesting. Yeah, that'd be great. We, we would love to do a round two someday and, and, and drill down. This is a great, great first one. We covered a lot of ground. Um, if you want to say hi on the internet, uh, is there a website or Instagram account you want to share or any of that? Uh, in Instagram is uh, archery only the pro shop. That, that's our Instagram account. That That's our the account that, that we're on uh, more than anything else these days. Uh, we used to do a lot of Facebooking and then Facebooking uh, won't let us advertise. Uh, so archery shops and, and, uh, 
and doing lessons uh, for uh, kids and stuff like that, they won't let us advertise. We're, they put us in the same category as assault rifles and uh, huh. commando knives, believe it or not. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Even though it's an Olympic sport, you you cannot advertise archery lessons on Facebook. So we've, we've really backed off from, from Facebook a bunch j- just because of that it's like really i mean yeah. it's we're the we're the evil empire we, we can't show a 13 year old girl shooting a bow with a female instructor wearing a girl power shirt they wouldn't let us put that on inter- on the internet either hmm. so i mean it's, it's kind of weird so we've we've kind of morphed into instagram even though it's owned by the same company uh they're a little bit more lenient on, on what we could do and then we have archfeonly.com which is our old worn out website that uh, sooner or later we'll we'll get that up and running again. But uh, we're there with that, and that has our store hours and kind of who we are and what we do. And that would be the easiest ways to get a hold of us. And if you're in the Bay Area, definitely come visit Archery Only. It is a great, great shop in New York. Just looking at the animals and getting to talk to Wayne is is worth the, the visit. Um, but other than that, thank you so much, Wayne, for for coming on the show. We really, really appreciate it. It was super fun getting to pick your brain uh, in a more you know formal way, so to speak. And we'd love to do a round two someday. Yeah, no problems. Thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate it.